I'm Laura. And I'm Georgiana. And this is Decanterbury Tales. What is up, pals of the pod? Happy holidays, everyone. This is Laura. And if you can't tell, I am flying solo right now. Yes, it is the holiday season, and Georgiana has trusted me to record this intro all by myself. So we're just going to see how this goes, y'all. We have a very special holiday episode. We are interviewing the author of Killers of a Certain Age, Deanna Rayborn. It is such a treat. She is incredible. We both immediately got off the phone and said, oh my gosh, I could have talked to her for hours. But for your listening enjoyment, we do have a lovely interview where we chat about Killers of a Certain Age and all sorts of amazing things regarding her writing and her inspiration for this novel. And a few bookkeeping, housekeeping things to share with you guys. Please mark your calendars. We have two events coming up on December 22nd. You can join us online live for book banter with Blue Cypress Books in New Orleans. And also February 23rd and 24th, you can join us live in Natchez, Mississippi for the 34th annual Natchez Literary and Cinema Celebration in Natchez, Mississippi at the Natchez Convention Center. So we absolutely look forward to seeing some of you there, meeting some of you guys. Definitely come do that. And that's what we have so far. So I'm just going to kick it straight into our interview and we hope that you enjoy our interview with Deanna Rayborn, the author of Killers of a Certain Age. Cheers. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. I am very happy to be here. We are so lucky to have Deanna Rayborn, author of Killers of a Certain Age, with us to answer our questions. And so I want to start out with saying, First of all, congrats on all of the accolades that you've gotten for Killers of a Certain Age. Amazon's Best 100 of 2022 being recommended on Hoda and Jenna, New York Times and USA, USA Today bestseller list. It's time to gush and toot your horn. How are you feeling? Um, I, you know, I, I literally was emailing my publicist yesterday and said that if I had been opening champagne for every one of these pieces of good news that we've gotten since September, I would have a serious liver problem right now because (laughs) we are, I mean, it's amazing. Uh, The stuff that just keeps, you know, the end of year lists that we've been lucky enough to make. Um, Emma Straub recommended us on the Today Show again yesterday. So, you know, the the word keeps getting out there and, you know, lots of people keep discovering our killers and saying really, really nice things about them. And I'm immensely appreciative for everybody who's sharing the book love. Well, we totally get it. That's why we picked your book because it's phenomenal. It's fantastic. And I'm glad that you're getting the recognition that you deserve because kudos. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, we both very much have enjoyed it. And you've written two very successful series, both are historical fiction. So what caused your shift to write present day standalone novel or plot twist? Is it a standalone novel? <laughs> nice try. Um, <laughs> That is that is one of those questions that I, I cannot actually answer. All I can tell you is people are talking. So that's all I can say about that. Um, it, it actually started with um, my publisher 
they came to me, my editor called me up, um, God, I think it's been two years now, called me up and said, you know, hey, we were talking in the office and we realized there's just not enough fiction about older women kicking ass. You know, we want to we want to see older women having a really good time because there are older women in fiction, not enough of them. But usually it's through the lens of, oh, I'm going through a really crappy divorce or, oh, I've got this terrible you know, diagnosis or, oh, I've got to help my aging parent. Where are the older women who are just living their best lives and having an awesome time? And she said, would you be interested yeah. in writing anything about them? And I said, yes, 100%. Thank you so much. Um, but I went off and, and had a little think and I came back and I said, okay, I want them to be assassins and I want it to be a contemporary. And they said, cool, that's awesome. We love assassins. And what do you mean you want to write a contemporary? <laughs> um, that was the part that really threw them because I've only, you know, my, my uh, kind of closest to a contemporary setting that I've ever done would be my books that are set in the 1920s. And so this was a huge departure. And they were, God bless them for trusting me uh, with this because, you know, publishers tend to be small c conservative right they they like to go with what works and if they feel like you're doing really really well they don't have a huge incentive to let you out of that space because you know they're making money you're making money you've got readers everybody's happy and if they if they let you're you in out your of box that, yeah exactly and if you if you stray too far from that space then who's to say you can even do it and so they let me try. And, you know, for a couple of, I think it was uh, about two years altogether, I would write a draft and then send it off to my editor and she would send me back notes and I would cry. And then I would go off and have to write, you know, a, a, another Veronica Speedwell book or launch one of the Veronica books or something like that. And so in between, I just kept coming back to Killers and reworking it. And finally, um, 96 hours before it was due, I figured out exactly how the flashback scenes needed to be structured. And I had to tear the book apart to put the flashback scenes in the correct places. And um, I, I literally, for that 96 hour stretch, and I don't recommend this at all. Um, I, I like worked in my pajamas. I would, I would write as long as I could, fall into bed, sleep for a little while, get up, eat a little food and work. And then I just did that for that 96 hour period. And like at the end of it, oh my God, I needed a shower so bad. Um, <laughs> the dogs like wouldn't even come near me. They're like, girl, you stank. Um, so <laughs> it was, it, I was feral, but it was, it was, it all came together. Like I, I knew, I knew exactly what I was doing. And I knew this book then at that point was going to be what it needed to be and sent it into my editor and she called me a week later and said well she let me just put it to you this way I hung up the phone and burst into tears again but for a completely different reason um because you know we we knew at that point that that we had a book that was going to be special um and we finally got there that's so. such a good feeling oh my god the relief just <laughs> the going. sheer relief because that yeah. was it was um it was about a year ago this time and so, um, cause it was, it was just, I think, uh, uh, about two, maybe three weeks before Christmas. Um, and I just kind of oh, wow. passed out for the rest of December and went, I, I can't even wrap my head around the fact that this book is finished. Um, and it's, it's going to go in and it's, it's done and it's where I want it to be. That's kind of like the ultimate you lived holiday. Out your own your late night. Oh, I'm gonna say you also lived out your your late night session like they do when they make their master plan 
<laughs> you just did it to make the whole book. I did. I absolutely did. You know, which is actually a really great segue into what I did today. I got to make a murder wall, which <gasps> I love a murder wall. And I got to make my, my murder wall for my newest Veronica that I'm writing. Um, and I'm so excited about it. The only thing it's missing is I just got the red yarn. So I have to put the red yarn on it. That's the only part that hasn't been done yet, but all the pictures are up and just, oh, murder wall. I love a good murder wall. Nice. I know. Nice. <laughs> you're, you're speaking we're to the right people. Laura is like a true crime aficionado. I'm obsessed with like criminal minds and like any Netflix special they do on true crime. So we're just like, oh my gosh, can you send us a picture? Okay, so yeah, I don't know if you guys have seen on Peacock, they are streaming, um, it, it's finished now, but you can binge the entire series, um, an original series they were doing called The Resort. And it's about a husband and wife who go to the Yucatan to a resort for an anniversary trip, but they stumble upon a cold case and she creates a murder wall in their hotel room. And I'm like, that is my dream vacation. Like, <laughs> I want a cold case murder There's so I can make a murder wall. I can solve it. Oh my God. I love that idea. Yes. Yes. Because I am just delusional enough to think that I could do this. I mean, you wrote yeah. a whole book, so I, I think you probably could. <laughs> I don't know. I may be better at You're killing probably... people off fictitiously than bringing them to justice. Well, speaking of killers, there's mm -hmm. been a lot of uh, cheeky associations uh, like 007 meets Golden Girls. Do you love this or do you hate it? <laughs> Oh, I think it's great. I mean, whatever, whatever people want to say about it, you know, however it amuses them to think of it. Um, Golden, the Golden Girls comparison kind of drives me crazy because on the one hand, it is amazingly apt because it, that is how old they were. Like I was shocked when I found out that the character of Dorothy, B. Arthur's character was my age. She's 55. I mean, I'm going to be 55 on my next birthday and we, we don't look a whole lot alike. Um, no. She, she looks like no. a woman of more mature years than I do at this point. And I was absolutely like, I thought she was supposed to be a good 10, 15 years older than I am. So she's right in that spot of, of, you know, kind of being really close to our 60 year old killers, except we think that the golden girls are so much older than that. So that's mm -hmm. the only part of yeah. it that kind of makes me uh, a little bit bonkers. But I mean, whatever makes people happy. I love the people keep referring to them as spies, which I think is hilarious because they're not. But they 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 just keep yeah. shorthanding that with spies. And I'm like, you know what? If that makes you happy, like, fine, fine. <laughs> it's like people just didn't want to keep writing assassin over and over again. I know. Right. Um... It's an obnoxious word. <laughs> it's quite fun, though. A lot of us. Uh, <laughs> but, a lot of uh, but so that really segues really well into kind of the meat and potatoes of what we wanted to talk to you about. So I promise there's a question in what I'm about to say. So we pulled out a quote. I found this brought up over and over again um, in, you know, discussions of your novel. And the quote was older women often feel invisible, but sometimes that's their secret weapon. And leading into the topic of age in the media, currently the 65 to 74 is your largest age demographic. And we selected your book after finishing Remarkably Bright Creatures by Shelby Van Pelt, which also features one of her lead characters is, you know, an older woman. And we loved Toba's perspective and story, but what we love about killers of a certain age, it highlights women 
you know, over 60 kicking ass because women over 60 and women in general are awesome. Um, why to you was it so important to highlight this demographic? And not that they're not iconic, um, but can any story about women of a certain age not be compared to the golden rule? And so that was kind of our, our hand in hand was because it kept coming up and it keeps coming up. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, but these women, like, Billy is a master in hand-to-hand combat. There's no way she looks like Dorothy. So, and like my mom's, you know, about to turn 70 and she does Pilates and people think she's 50. Right. So I just, you know, in general, you know, we'd love to know why to you specifically was it important to highlight these people? Well, you know, I, I feel like 60 is is kind of this age that it, it's... It, it's a really liminal age, you know, it, it's, it's transitioning between, I mean, when I was a kid, 60 was just ancient. It was old. Like I've seen pictures of my grandmother at my age and God love her. She, you know, she had a whole lot more gray hair than I do. She was in her little house coat that she's, you know, little house dresses she used to wear every day. And she acted like an older, older woman. And yet it's exactly what you say. Now, People who are 60, 65, 70, they're doing Pilates, they're doing yoga, they're, they're still a lot more physically engaged. And I think that, that that's a shift we've been seeing over the last 20 or 30 years is um, as, you know, like I'm Gen X and as we're aging up, we're still, I mean, we're the generation that grew up skateboarding latchkey kids. And, you know, so we're, we're not kind of giving up on some of that stuff and well, okay, the skateboarding, I'm totally not doing that, but you know, there, there are still a lot of things that, that we do that we haven't given up. And, and the idea that aging is changing and the face of aging is changing, I think is really, really fascinating. And I loved the idea of dealing with characters I mean, there have been a number of, of books that have come out in the last couple of years that have dealt with elderly people, um, killers in particular, or even detectives who are in their 70s and 80s. And those are fascinating and I love them, but a lot of them feature people who are in um, like retirement communities or they're using walkers and things like that. And I thought, you know, there is this space in between oh, I'm 25 and I can kick anybody's ass and oh, I'm 80 and I'm going to break a hip if you look at me sideways. And so I wanted to see what's that, you know, what that little Venn diagram of not quite in the grave and, you know, still doing amazing things. Like where, where would these women fit? What are they able to do? Can they still do hand-to-hand combat? Yes, but it's going to hurt like hell and they're going to feel it the next day and they have to work a lot harder to, maintain the shape that they're in and also i i feel like there's a huge difference between those of us who were brought up before handheld devices became ubiquitous Mm -hmm. we have a very very different way of relating to the world we have a very different way of interacting personally what what my observation has been is that the generations who came after us find much more anxiety in relating to people face to face and in reading people face-to-face, they are much better than we are a lot of times at adapting to technology. And these are gross generalizations, but but mm-hmm. this is you know what I see a lot of is somebody who's 20 or 25 is a lot more nervous maybe about making a phone call or maybe finds it a little bit trickier to maintain eye contact or to read energy when you're when you're with someone. Whereas somebody who's you know 60, 65, 
that's what they grew up doing. You know, they may find it trickier to figure out how to how to do, you know, the the most elaborate of the online banking transactions. So we, everybody's got their own skill sets, but they seem to be changing a little bit depending on on what your demographic is and what you grew up with. And that's not to say that there aren't 25 year olds who are completely emotionally fluent and everything. And that's not to say that there aren't 80 year olds who can do their online taxes and are great at it. It's just that generationally we, we're coming from different places and it can take a little more effort to cross over those spaces. And so I was really, really intrigued by the idea that these women, if they're thrown without their tech resources, they can fall back on the training that they had starting in 1979, when all they had was, oh, you're a woman, you're going to be underestimated, use that as not a liability, use it as a strength, use it as a superpower. And then as you get older, it's not oh, you're a young, pretty woman, you must be stupid. It's you're a young, older woman, I don't even see you. Or you're, you're an older, less attractive woman, I don't even see you. So that's the change as you get older, is you become less visible. Um, and that's, a, that's you know, kind of one of the, the, the things that I think anybody over 25 has, has you know, started to look at and go, oh, how I am perceived is different in this society as I age. Um, and so that was, to me, something else interesting to to kind of look at and play with. I mean, it's spot on. I mean, I'm 30 and I've become ma'am to many people. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Take that hey, back. Crone. <laughs> Just, old crone, please go. You right? like to hold the doll. I'm like, right. oh my gosh, I'm yeah. 30. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, but then I'm also like, I'm 30. I know what a landline is. And I work yeah. with some people in their early 20s previously, and they had no idea what a landline was, what dial up was, what it was not to have Wi Fi. And I was like, you don't remember the annoying beeps? And oh my so, God. I saw a TikTok of a couple of 16 year olds who were presented with a landline phone and could not figure out how to dial it. And I was like, oh, wow wow, we have really lost some of the stuff that, you know, I mean, like we just passed straight through uh, the the tape years, you know, like these are kids who have no idea how to rewind a cassette tape and that's fine. Why should they? Um, but it just, it's, I know, right. You know, I'm, I'm not even going to say the word Betamax to you. Um, but yeah, it's, it's amazing when you think about it. Cause when I was a kid, it was vinyl. And then we went to, to, you know, eight tracks and then cassette tapes and then CDs came in and now we're back to vinyl along with digital. And so it's just, it's phenomenal when you think about the changes that just happened over, you know, a 50 year period, because our technology is changing so fast, but that means we're changing and how we perceive information and how we relate to each other and how we integrate that information into our lives. It's all changing like faster than we can really process that which is, you know, one of those kind of terrifying um, hamster wheels that you get on. But I mean, Victorians did exactly the same thing, if that's any consolation, because that's one of the things that I, you know, discovered in doing my Victorian series is that they were not comfortable with the speed at which technology was changing their lives. And so, and we've just sped up the process to the nth degree. And so the fact that, that, you know, we seem to, as a society, have issues with anxiety and, and you know, other, other issues like that relating to mental health, God, I'm not surprised. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's wild. 
It is. I mean, I can't even imagine. Georgiana can't compute. It was spinning. <laughs> yeah. 15, 20 years from now, like, what are my, what are my potential grandchildren going to like have to teach me that I can't even conceive of at this point? Yeah. All of these like blue ocean ideas that the things that we don't even know that we need, but right. they're going to come into be, and then we're not going to know how to live without them. No, and it's really funny too, because I live in a town with a lot of retirees. And like last week I got stuck in line behind a woman who was literally writing a paper check. And I was, I, you know, I'm fascinated by the idea that some people just hit a certain stage of technology in their lives and they're like, okay, I'm done. I literally cannot learn anything more. I'm not going to make an effort. This is not happening. And they won't, you know, they won't use a, a smartphone they won't, they're by God, where's my phone book. And, you know, you say that to a 15 year old and they're like, how's the phone book. Um, and it's amazing to me that, it, but also kind of understandable that some people just get to the point. They're like, no, I'm done. It's too much. I have learned all I can learn. I was born in a time when radio was our only, you know, form of electronic entertainment. I'm out mm -hmm. and they just tap out. And you know what? Yeah, there was one I've, <laughs> I've brought this up a couple of times of uh, the question on the phone of where are you is a question that has only come up in about the last 30 years because previously you had to physically know where someone was <laughs> to call them. Yeah, but if I, I call you, you're movies, obviously at home there or like the movies where someone gets a phone call at a restaurant my son we were watching a movie and he goes why did they call him at the restaurant <laughs> <laughs> because he doesn't have a cell phone that's the only way to, how do you how did they know what what number to call like Ooh, we got to go in deep about phone books <laughs> and like, oh my god and there's that whole it was amazing whole, it was a very long discussion there's that whole amazing scene early on in North by Northwest where Cary Grant's character is sitting in the bar and the, and they have to, you know, the porter has to come through, the messenger's coming through and paging him by verbally walking around, calling his name to see where he is because he's got a phone call. And it's, you know, I just, I love that. I love that because it puts me in such a different space from where we are. And it's like, my God, stuff has just changed so much. Mm -hmm. Take me back. I, I miss simpler <laughs> times. I, I would really like to not have a cell phone on my person where people can harass me all the time. Yeah, it would be I, fabulous. It, it actually is because I just got back to, there is a, a resort that I go to where I, you know, when I want to decompress and one of the rules is you leave your cell phone, they give you a sleeping bag when you check in for your cell phone and you lock it in your safe and you leave it there the whole time you're at the resort. It's amazing. The days are so long. The That's days incredible. are so long. I literally had to buy a watch so that I could know what time I was supposed to be places when I was at the resort. Because I was like, oh, okay, we have dinner reservations. And I had, I had to know what time it was. And it was like a watch. My God, that's a good, what, 25 years since I've worn one of those. But it is, it, it opens up the time and it makes it so expansive and lovely. And you're like, I, how is it possible that this device that, that does so much for us, that saves us so many errands, takes over to the degree that if you lock it up for, you know, nine hours, suddenly it feels like 18. I want to lock my phone up. I'm going to do it. Do it. Do it. I strongly encourage this. Do it. <laughs> 
and you could do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of something you did that we oh. want to know about. Oh, um, God. No, I'm scared. <laughs> in your book, oh, did okay. you did you always know that you were going to start the novel in the past on the airplane with the assassination? Because like, what a way to grip us. We were like, oh, she went there. She did that. And like, what research did you do to become an assassin adjacent? Um, <laughs> and follow up again, is novelist just your cover? Oh, yeah, that's like I tell you. Um, <laughs> no, the... Um, <laughs> The decision to put that first mission as the opening chapter of the book was one of those things I did not decide till the 96 hours before the book mm. was due. Um, I nice. opened it elsewhere. I opened it with them getting on to the, to the boat with what is now chapter two was the opening. And I kept thinking, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And I couldn't figure out why or how to fix it until I had that scene in my hand and went, oh, and you know copied and pasted the entire scene in front and went this is it this is it um and i nice. love that scene that is one of my favorite scenes i have ever written i just i love it to death um i had stupid amounts of fun researching this book and figuring out the different ways that you could kill somebody um, because I knew I didn't want to do like really technical explosives. I don't like firearms. So I didn't want to have to go and research a ton about them because I'm just frankly not interested in it. I'm fascinated with the ways that I did end up killing people because I think they're all really, really interesting. Um, and, and that's not to say that, you know, my assassins have never used guns. It's just you know, because they were going to be relying on themselves and they didn't have an organization that could smuggle them, you know, ordnance or, or uh, artillery or ammunition or explosives or anything else that they might have needed. I had to get them falling back on their experience and their resources. And these are women who can literally walk down the aisle at CVS and find 17 things to kill you. And I thought that's what I want them to do because they, they're going to be crossing international borders. They can't have things on them that are going to raise questions. They've mm -hmm. got to be able to say, you know, no, this is just a, you know, a, a, a tiny bottle of brandy. What are you talking about? And then you find out what it actually is and, and how they made it and how it can be used to kill somebody. And you go, oh. And, you know, this is where I usually have to issue um, a, a disclaimer and say, please don't try these methods at home. I don't want to be in a lawsuit because right. you decided, you know, it would be fun to bump off your husband and you thought to try one of these. So, you know, please don't because um, they do actually work. <laughs> I'm That's told. Wild. I'm told. You're like, yes. or was I told? <laughs> No, I, I, um, I'm and, theoretically, and that's all I promise. Nice. Happy people just don't shoot their husbands. They just don't. They just don't. Thank they you. Just don't. Thank you. Are we going to like devolve into a discussion of ammonium thigloflate next? We, we could. <laughs> so as New Orleans, we love seeing our city as a setting. And down to the path Billy took down to shake her tail, like you nailed it. Every turn, every corner, we could see ourselves walking down the streets. What is your relationship with the city? How long did you spend there to get it so right? And also, thank you for doing so. Oh, thank you so much. I, 
have such a crush on that city. I love New Orleans. I've only been there probably about four times, but I, I have taken it very much to my heart. It's one of those cities you just fall in love with when you, uh, when you wander around. And I'm, I'm particularly smitten with the French Quarter, of course. And when I'm there, I just, I like to wander. And so the path that, that Billy takes, I literally walked the last time I was there because I was like, okay, if I'm trying to leave Jackson Square, you know, what, what's going to be a quick way to get over to the Monteleone? And then as I'm walking along, I'm noticing, oh, this garage has, you know, one of those great big parking mirrors that, that, you know, to see if traffic's coming and she can use that. And, you know, I was sitting on the pool deck at the Monteleone going, this would be a great place to hide from people. And, um, and as I was walking through an alley right next to the cathedral, there was literally a clown putting on his, his grease paint sitting on the steps of a doorway. And I thought that is so going in the book um, because it's just, you never, it is the most unexpected city. You just never know what you're going to encounter. And, you know, you, you turn any corner and there is just something magic happening there. Um, and sometimes it is unsettling magic and sometimes it is just, you know, very straightforward, um, you know, kind of lovely life affirming magic, but either way it is, it is, um, it is one of my favorite places on earth. And so I thought, you know, if, if, if Billy needs a place to kind of keep in her back pocket of, of where she would go, um, I, I feel like it would be, it would be that city. Yeah, because you can totally be incognito in New Orleans. Like, I, I know what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but what happens in New Orleans stays in New Orleans. And so if you do not want to be seen or heard or found, I mean, no, totally. absolutely. And that is, you know, to me, that's one of the beauties of walking through the quarter is, is you can just, you know, change your body language a little bit and, you know, you just blend in and it doesn't matter almost how much of an outrageous thing you could be wearing. There's going to be somebody who's dressed more outrageously than you are um, because it's just everything goes. There's someone there. who New Orleans harder than you. Exactly. Exactly. And I had um, a number of years ago, I had a really remarkable tarot reading in Jackson Square. And so I, I always had it in the back of my head that I kind of wanted to pay homage to, um, to that experience and include um, a tarot reading in Jackson Square to see if I could find a way to work that into a book sometime. And, you know, I always, there are certain places I always stop by. So I, I tried to make sure that, um, that I kind of gave a nod to those two. And, and that section of the book is, is very much a love letter to, to New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Well, Thank oh, you. And we love it. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm glad it I'm glad it hit the right note. Um, jazz, jazz joke not intended. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I know we've taken up a lot of your time, so we're gonna be a little quicker. This is our last like in-depth question, and then we'll do kind of some fun, quick questions <laughs> for you. Um, but who was of the four women your favorite to write? You know, I don't, it's not that I have a favorite amongst the four because they, they each um, kind of called to something different and they each required something different. And I love them all um, because Billy is the narrative character. I spent a lot more time in her head 
than I did the others because you know the the present day stuff is all written through um, from Billy's perspective. It's filtered through her lens, and so I got to know her a lot better. And she has a little bit of a similar background in that she's also from Texas. Um, mm. I gave her. I have known a lot of women when I was growing up in Texas who were extremely resilient, extremely resourceful, extremely strong, often not seen, often not appreciated, um, and still just getting in there and doing what needed to be done. And so there are little, um, just kind of tiny little love note details um, that you would probably have to know the entire story of my life to like understand each one of them and where they're laid in. And probably I don't even know all of them because there some were probably subconscious, um, but they're there because they are very much just um, little details that, you know, kind of these, these wonderful little sparks of memory of, of these women. Um, and I, I laid them into Billy's experiences um, because she's just, she was a very special character to write. Hmm. What part of Texas are you from? San Antonio. Okay. Great city. Been there for Christmas. Great time. <laughs> it's a very good time to be there. Yeah. I, I haven't lived there in about 19 years, but, uh, but yes, that is, that is, uh, that is my place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Louisiana and Texas are right next to each other. So <laughs> there's a little, a little overlap there <laughs> for sure. And then, so this was kind of, this was kind of a fun exercise, uh, cause I had an idea and so if your work was picked up for a screen adaptation, who would be your dream cast for your four leading ladies? Like just money's no option, schedule's no option. They would love to be in your work. Uh, so who would be your four leading ladies? And then also who would you pick for Taverner? And <laughs> I will tell you who I cast is Natalie because the second it came in my head, I was like, oh, oh yeah. Um, Dolly Parton. For Natalie? That is a surprise. That is very much a surprise, but I, I, I love that. See, in my head, Natalie, okay, here's another disclaimer. Um, I don't usually like to discuss Dreamcasts simply because I okay. want readers to imagine who they imagine and to feel like that's 100% okay and that mm -hmm. they're not getting it wrong. Um, so I, I say that with, with that caveat that just because I have a picture in my head doesn't mean anybody else's picture is wrong. Um, it's just what I pictured. I had a photo of Diane Lane, um, mm. on my computer for Billy the whole time I was writing. Um, just there's okay. something about her face and she is, um, I think 58 now. So, you know. Uh, she would, by the time, you know, this thing got optioned and cameras were rolling, she would be exactly the perfect age to do this. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, something, something along those, those lines, I think. Um, I think it's hilarious that you said Dolly Parton for Natalie. And I love that because to me, she's Mary Alice. Mm. Because Mary like Alice is, is curvaceous and Natalie is, is very wiry um she's she's the uh the the yoga pilates baby so i always think of her like with bb new earth's hair and you know that kind of thing so i have a very different vibe for her but that's that's great i okay. love that um and then 
I'm trying to think, Helen always had this, this very kind of cool patrician vibe to me. So somebody, somebody who would look really at home in Ralph Lauren clothes, uh, would be, would be Helen. So I don't have, um, I don't have specifics. The one thing I will say is the first thing people say is, oh, Helen Mirren. Helen Mirren is 75 now. And so if you're looking oh. at 60 year olds, you're looking at, and I mean, Helen Mirren is amazing. Do not get me wrong. She is a phenomenal human being and utterly gorgeous and completely kick-ass. If you're looking at 60, you're looking at Jamie Lee Curtis, Angela Bassett, like those are the women who are mm -hmm. 60. And that, like the first time I realized that it absolutely rocked my world because we're not used to thinking of those women in that age bracket, but that's exactly who um, the target would be. Mm -hmm. I mean, because Jennifer Aniston is 50, I think, 51. Um, I think she's older than oh, that. Wow. Maybe she? 55. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Somebody's so, got to get out yield, Google. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then for Taverner, who you got? Who's, who's playing in here? <laughs> um, you know, the funny thing is I'm, I'm actually really flexible on that too, because there was a... I only ever had a mental picture of young Taverner mm. because young Billy in my head was Florence Pugh. And so, uh, right. I mean, how amazing is she? I just adore uh, Florence. Pugh. Yeah. Um, and so young Taverner in my head was not actually an actor. I found a picture of um, one of the songs that's in my um, killer's playlist which i actually have on apple for people to find one of the song a couple of the songs on there are from um gordon lightfoot and there the, i ran across a photo of him i think it's on the cover of his biography when he was going through kind of a young messy tousled hair phase with a beard and he had a henley on and it was like probably 1972 when this picture was taken and i was like that is such a tavern vibe it's <laughs> such a good vibe um, yeah, the playlist is mostly 1970s music. It's a lot of um, Fleetwood Mac and uh, CCR and um, Don't Fear the Reaper, of course, because I just thought that was funny. And it's mm -hmm. got, uh, you know, there's Kansas on there. It's, um, it's, pretty, it, it's pretty Stevie Nicks heavy um, as well, which is great. <laughs> Arguably the best decade of music. We could have that fight out, but um oh i will throw down with anyone about that because the 70s was just the winner yeah absolutely and she is 53 oh there we go okay so we were pretty close pretty um, close for aniston yeah 53 yeah so she's not quite she's not quite up there but you know it's um it's just fascinating to me how the, how we kind of get an idea that actresses are this certain age and we don't really think of them you know when i was a, a teenagers when Diane Lane and Jamie Lee Curtis were you know they were the they were the gorgeous you know chicks that everybody wanted and and they were these uber sex symbols and they're still amazing and phenomenal and gorgeous and they're 60 and that's just incredible and I love that wow um so what is your go-to book You've read it so many times. You can pick it up anywhere and just go. Notes in the margins, wine stains. What's your drink of choice, alcoholic or not? <laughs> My go-to book. Um, there is, 
I will give you one fiction and one nonfiction. Um, the fiction is a book called Maestra by L.S. Hilton. And it was billed as an erotic thriller and people either loved it or hated it. That was literally the tagline her publisher ended up using when they um, came out with the second one was love it or hate it, you had to read it. Um, it's a it's a British thriller. It has art theft and it has, um, you know, a, a female serial killer. And I just, I think this book is so much bonkers fun. I love that book. And then um, nonfiction, um, I loved Marlena de Blasey's A Thousand Days in Venice. Um, it is the, um, it's a, a fairly short memoir of an American woman who meets a Venetian man and within like a matter of a day practically has decided to sell everything in the States and move to Venice um, to be with him. And they are older when they meet. And so it's very much, um, you know, kind of a, oh, I'm, I'm, this is a whole new chapter. And, and it's about just taking a massive, massive risk and completely like reinventing her life, which I thought was just, so, and it's beautifully kind of lyrically written, um, which I really, really loved. So, and I am a Gemini. So if you ask me that question again tomorrow, it will be completely different. <laughs> um, okay. Um, drink of choice. If it is um, non-alcoholic, it would be um, tea. Lapsang Souchong is uh, a favorite. And if it is alcoholic, um, I am particularly fond of a rosé called Whispering Angel. Whispering Angel's great. It is very good stuff. It is yeah. very good stuff. Well, we can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Uh, this is another one of those moments where we're like, I sent an Instagram DM and she told me to reach out. So we're going to reach out on her website. So thank you one for responding to us sliding in your DMs. Oh, and, yeah. you know, yeah, thank yeah, you yeah. for that so much. So thank you for writing this novel. Thank you for joining us on the show. And uh, what comes next for you and how can our listeners support you, find you, if they want to connect or learn more about your work and you. Oh, thank you guys so much for having me. Um, you can find me at DeannaRayburn.com. Uh, I am still on Twitter, hanging on my fingernails, but I'm still there. Um, and I have actually had to fire up my blog again uh, with the idea that, that, you know, Twitter is kind of um, having its, its hopefully not its last gasp, but God only knows at this point. Um, I'm also on Instagram um, and trying out a couple of the new social media platforms. And just, you know, huge thanks to everybody who has talked about this book and shared their love for it. And um, it's it, like you said, it's making some great end of the year, you know, hey, what to buy your grandmother for Christmas lists, um, which is awesome. If it is not within your reach, then ask your local library to get it because we love libraries. So um, make sure you give the libraries a lot of love this year because a lot of libraries have had a really, really tough 2022 and they've kind of come under fire. And so uh, requesting it through your local library for them to purchase is an awesome way to um, support your, um, your library system. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I can't, I, like, I just keep saying thank you. So thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Have a great weekend. <laughs> you too. Bye-bye.
I mean, I don't want to be the one to say we told you so, but we told you so. We hope that y'all enjoyed that interview with Deanna Rayborn regarding her book, Killers of a Certain Age, as much as we did. Thank you again to Deanna for coming on the show. We so appreciate your time and enjoy just getting to chat with you about this book. So we hope that you guys enjoyed that. Also, we hope that you're reading our December Boozy Book Club pick, I'm Glad My Mom Died by Jeanette McCurdy. We'll be covering that in December. And if you have anything that you want to tell us, send us a book recommendation, a wine recommendation, or tell us a story about, you know, about reading, about wine drinking, anything that you want to share with us, you can send us an email at decantaberrypod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at decantaberrypod, Facebook, Decanterberry Tales, the podcast. We're also on Goodreads, Decanterberry Tales, and check out our website, www.decanterberrytales.com. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Bottoms up and stay weird. Bye. Did you know alcohol deliveries have been legal in Mississippi as of July 1st, 2021, with the passage of House Bill 1135? Alcohol deliveries in Mississippi are finally here. Born in Mississippi and locally owned and operated, Moonshine delivers your favorite drinks to your home. Moonshine MS works with local stores to deliver wine, liquor, and beer right to your door. They have over 3,000 products on their easy-to-use platform. You can order from the website or the mobile app. If you live in the Jackson area, you have to hit them up. Y'all, I've used it and it is so great. Winner, winner, vodka sauce dinner. So head to moonshinems.com to learn more or head to the app store and download the Moonshine app to get your order today. That's moonshinems.com or follow them on social media at moonshinems and tell them that you can't bear girl sent you.